Hey everyone, we're happy to partner with Medify to bring you Season 2 of Between Us. Medify is an app that encourages awareness of mind, body, and emotions. I use it and can tell that it was developed by therapists. And as someone who isn't tech-savvy, I can say that it's easy to use and really helpful. Medify, M-E-T-A-F-I, is a free download on iOS and Android. So go download it today and be your best self. I remember vividly thinking that I was in this different dimension and that a couple of the people in the company that I felt most strongly towards were in it with me. And I specifically thought that we were part of a secret group that was gonna work towards creating a robot that was going to positively affect the world. I lived in Austin, Texas, and I worked at McDonald's. It is an honor and a privilege to speak to you today to tell you about my condition and the other world. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Today, we are continuing with our guests from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Steve Murphy, Jeff Hicks, and Nick Ryder are all in three different stages of life. But what they do have in common is that they have all taken their experiences of bipolar disorder head on. I think one of the things that is really apparent in their stories to me is the sense of desperation and isolation that they felt when they were cycling as if no one in the world understood what they were going through. And the truth is that there are a lot of different manifestations of bipolar disorder. We think of bipolar as simply cycling between manic and depressive episodes, but that's not true. Sometimes our guests were hypomanic, which means that they were slightly elevated. Sometimes they went long times without depressive episodes. Some people only experience the depressive episodes, and some people only experience the mania. It's called unipolar. It really is a spectrum of different experiences. Here's Nick on his second manic episode, which soon followed the first. What was it like to be hospitalized for the first time? Horrible. Very confusing. And... I was very frustrated for the whole time. I was livid. I stayed up. I tore papers out of the copy machine. I was very angry. After the California experience, mm-hmm. I went home uh, because I was compromised in California, and my parents thought it'd be safer for me to be at home. But I was still fighting with my parents almost daily, mm-hmm. and one day decided to fly out to Boston to see to live with a roommate instead. So bought a plane ticket. May possibly the beginning of another manic episode. Definitely. Damn. Definitely during that mix. Did they know where you were? No, I called them when I got to Boston. I can only imagine that they were, they freaked out. Yeah, they freaked out. I was trying to get back into school, and my advisor thought that I should do a check, a mental health check, before I go back to school. And I 
go to a the the therapist like a school therapist school therapist exactly and they assess me and say that I would recommend it that I go to the hospital and although I wasn't dangerous to myself or others because they deemed I was unable to care for myself that was the the third clause in Massachusetts state law that was necessary for me to go to the hospital they involuntarily committed me and uh, I got taken to a hospital and you hated it and I hated it did you I mean did you struggle against it yes yeah which means they had to have cops involved no, I not initially. Yeah. Initially, I'm a pretty bubbly, just curious fellow. And so I was, yeah. oh, I've never been in an ambulance before. I'll try it. And so <laughs> I was still crying. I was still very sad. But I was I was willing to go through the, the process. And, uh, and, and looking back, you know, I do have some modicum of gratitude to the doctors and the nurses and the people who helped me get to where I am today. But it's just so tricky. And I'm so filled with just conflicting emotions of of shame and of hatred because I don't know if it was necessary to go to the hospital and the the resistance came once I got there and couldn't get out um, because I, I, I signed my my papers and then was learning all I could about involuntary commitment and how much time they could keep me for but I wanted to get out immediately I just didn't understand it during the hospital I had uh, a psychotic theme of thinking that I could travel through time mm. and that happened once I got to the hospital I had had no psychosis during the period of fly to Boston and go to hospital but I started having psychosis once I got into the hospital and while I was at home prior to flying out to Boston I had a delusion that lasted for for weeks of me thinking I had created some amazing physics discovery, mm-hmm. which is a different type of psychosis that lasts for multiple weeks than the acute psychosis that happened in the hospital. I have had uh, delusions that are frightening, and so mm-hmm. thinking that people are after me with guns, but it's usually because I'm special. That's the reason why they're after me. Right. So once I got out of the hospital in Boston, I was in there for a month, mm-hmm. I came home to Washington, and that's where I spent most of my time up until I started school again. So I spent about two years in Washington. And, and golly gee, one of my episodes I had in my neighborhood. If you've never been in a psych ward before, it can be really scary, even for people who aren't experiencing delusions. Jeff Hicks was hospitalized at Seattle's Harborview Medical Center and the Psychiatric Emergency Services. I told Jeff that I have spent plenty of time there as a professional, and we reminisced at how scary it can be. It's kind of like a movie. You walk in through the emergency room and through the back door, and there's another door with a small window and a doorbell, and you get buzzed in, and there are all kinds of people suffering everything from suicidal episodes to mania to psychotic breakdowns. For a young person who has never been hospitalized, it has to be terrifying. I ended up in February, I tried to go back to work on January, just a short while after getting out of the hospital, because that was part of saying nothing's wrong with me. No, I'm fine, I can go back to work. They let me out of the hospital and was not the same person, could not operate at the same level because of the medications I was on, because of the psychotic break I had had, potentially damaged my you know, brain from what it, from the spinning up of the mania. February, I ended up taking a short-term leave of absence from work for a few months and then slid into 
a depression in January that led me to that leave of absence in February. My first and only depression, true, deep, dark depression. And what was that like? Like everything I'd ever done in the past didn't matter and like there was no hope for the future. Despite everything in my life, not everything, clearly, but despite objective goodness in my life and the overall big picture, despite friends and family and a place to live and you know a job at the time, I lost that job uh, a few months later and didn't work again for about two years while I got my condition under control. Mm. Yeah, I went through the stages of grief. I thought my life was over, that I would never amount to anything because I was limited by this condition, that it was my fault, that it would never end, that... Sorry, bouncing around the emotions, but it's... There were a lot of them at the time. And over the course of a few months, I bounced around all over them. But depression feels like there's no hope for the future. I thought about ways of dying quite a few times. Was that scary for you? It seemed like a way out. Yeah. It it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, Mm -hmm. which is so scary in hindsight. Yeah. I've never been suicidal again, but I know what it feels like now. It's given me a lot of empathy for for other people. For, For most of a year, I worked at the crisis clinic I volunteered at the crisis clinic over King County to try and help people who were in that space because I knew for a fact that you can get out of it. What was the process of coming out of that depressive episode like? It took me about six months to get out of that. But I had friends who had been through it and were very supportive. And my mom came into town for a few weeks when I was depressed and really helped me function. You know, I was scared of the mail. I couldn't make decisions as simple as salt and pepper without anxiety. I was a shell of who I felt like I was as a person, who I think I am. Everyone's got their self-image, and mine had been shattered by the bipolar disorder, by the depression. It is its own reality. Mania, you're not in the same plane as everybody else. Depression, you're not either, at least to me. Uh, It's not who I am, but I have been there. To go from feeling you're on top of the world, like you've got understanding of the way the universe works that nobody else has, to worthless failure. Dark place. I would not have gotten through any of this without my friends and family. I'm very fortunate, very lucky to have them. Uh, They have managed to get me into the hospital every time I've needed it, because I wouldn't have gone on my own every time and visited me while I was in the hospital and helped take care of my affairs so that I didn't lose job as I lose my home or you know things like that. What would you tell someone who is resistant against hospitalization, who is really struggling with kind of a... Admitting that something's wrong? Yeah. Lean into the trust you have in the people around you. Think historically, have they ever steered me wrong? Knowing that they had my best interests in mind, knowing that I was able to, to do what they asked me to while in the hospital, not resist the staff, take the medication I was supposed to. Right. Because I believed them, believed in them. And so I had a period of psychosis where I was running around my neighborhood in my boxers, thinking people were after me with guns Mm -hmm. and cutting my legs up on thorns as I was running away from people. Were you seeing them as well? I was not seeing them. I was just hearing hearing them. You were hearing them? All all auditory. Mm -hmm. That sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to shock 
I don't know better how to communicate with people that, like, for me, it, it was real. Sure. Like, my hallucination or my delusion, my auditory delusion that people were after me with guns was literally real to me. And so when I tell people in confidence that I've run away from, you know, it's just... It's just like... I can't communicate how frightened, you know, I was, and I didn't want to walk in my neighborhood. Mm. I stopped walking the dog. I didn't want to talk to my parents about it. I didn't want to talk to my therapist about it. And so you kind of seized up. Yeah, and even at a slower pace seized up and and just just kind of put a box around it and hmm. just decided I wouldn't really talk to anyone about it I mean eventually you told someone about it yeah <laughs> I've told people about it but there's a difference between telling something that it happened to me and then telling what it was like for it to happen and I've done more of the former than the latter just stating oh yeah I've had psychosis where I ran around and thought people were attacking me and it's different than like going to that place again and revisiting it sure but it's healing it's like healing is can be to to some degree I'm, I'm still you know I'm still in an early stage of really owning that part of my story have you gotten to the point where when your friends or family come to you and say hey it's time that you're compliant? Now? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I've been stable for more than two years now. So um, beginning in 2015, I'd say two years. Yeah. Uh, and I've gotten to a really good place with it. You know, I, I can catch ups and downs in a day. You know, I can catch mood changes now a little bit. Yeah, it, it can be hard to distinguish, you know, what action or behavior or decision is because you're bipolar and what is just because you're learning and growing in life as a human being. What if this is just a decision that I would make regardless, you know, despite the bipolar and that was an impetus to do it because they didn't have any barriers or limitations to making decisions because the impulses that would come through. I mean, it's a range of human emotion that everybody experiences. There just, I think, is a little bit wider of a range with bipolar. Sure. And that's, can be dangerous at the ends of the spectrum, but just being human in the middle like everybody else yeah um i definitely have had my goes of drinking too much and making bad decisions and but again how much of that is bipolar and how much of that is being in my 20s <laughs> yeah you know you learn as you grow and i've grown a lot as a person because of having bipolar disorder because of going through hospitalizations and struggling with depression and it's made me a more empathetic Person. It's made me a better person than I was. Mm. But hopefully we all grow as we get older. Do you remember Steve from our last episode? His first manic episode was almost 40 years ago in Chicago's O'Hare. He decided that someone was following him and spent six hours playing out the drama in the airport. Unlike today, there was no TSA back then. So when he was finally detained by security... He claimed that a female friend was waiting on him back in Seattle, which was true, and he was released to her custody. I asked him about his family history of mental illness and how it was addressed back when he was growing up. Was addiction ever an issue for you? No, I actually I'm so lucky. 
uh, that I didn't have any uh, substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a younger brother who also suffers from manic depression or bipolar, and he was, in addition, he was alcoholic. Sure, it's easy to do. Yeah, and uh, he the, the alcoholism masked the illness, and pretty soon, I mean, five years ago, he killed himself. Mm. Were you close to him at the time? Not at the time, but yeah. I was... I was close enough to him, and we talked about the illness, and yeah. it just wasn't enough, I guess. Yeah. That must have been really tough. Yeah, it was. Was there a history of mental illness in your family? Well, that's an interesting question. I never knew. Mm-hmm. I never knew, because in that era, all that stuff was swept under the carpet, not talked about. And as it turns out, my my uh, mother was uh, unipolar, and uh, we were told as children, when she had to go away, that she'd eaten something and she'll be back in a couple weeks. Uh, it's it's rife on that side of the family. Mm-hmm. My mother's uh, has uh, six siblings, and three had had some form of the illness, and then I have four siblings, and two of us had the illness. Mm-hmm. And then in the wider extended family on that side, it's all over the place. And never talked about. Never talked about. So when I got manic, it was like out of the blue. Didn't have a clue what was going on. The other the other hospitalizations. Yeah. Was your awareness of it greater? I mean, is this a gradual process of growing in awareness? Yeah. Uh, each, each time... I learned more about what it feels like to experience mania. The second time I was sliding into mania and was talking to a, my psychiatrist and he goes, well, maybe you're not on the right dose of medication. Maybe it is, you know, we'll adjust it. But I only saw him every couple of months. So we made an adjustment to my medication and it wasn't enough. Right. And, and it just, I started to slide and then I slipped on the meds and then missed him another day. Then I missed him another day and then it was too, too far gone. At the end of the hospitalizations, when I start to come down, I realize what I've done, and it becomes embarrassing in many ways because I, I, I have that self-recognition of, oh, that behavior is outside of societal norms. That behavior is outside of the happy, healthy, just spectrum. Uh, that behavior might have hurt my friends or family, some of the things I've said. And it, it can be difficult to deal with in hindsight. But at the beginning of those episodes, no, it just feels so fantastic. You have all these great ideas, and they may not be awful ideas, they're just really big ideas. I can only imagine that a long time ago you developed certain routines and structures in your life to help, besides just the medication, to help you manage the illness while being a rather successful member of society. Well, I, I'd have to say yes. And I tell everybody that I talk to, my number one coping skill is sleep. And, and I get eight, nine, even ten hours every single day it's routine sleep, so I go to bed at the same time and I get up at the same time. And I didn't figure that out for a long time. So I'd say seven or eight years ago, I told myself I'm going to go to bed when I'm tired, I'm going to get up when I wake up, and I'm just going to see what happens. And that's what developed. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't gone through any swings in almost 10 years now. And so, like, what's a regular sleep schedule for, like for you? Uh, 6.30 or 7 to go to bed. Yeah. 5 o'clock to get up. Sounds that sounds awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I also 
stress to the people that I talk to, I say I strive to keep positive relationships in my life. Hmm. Somebody wants to be negative, they can go somewhere else. Because for me, that negativity is really just a trigger. And so I don't need it. You know, the, the, the negative things can be around the illness, they can be around uh, relationships, whatever. But for me, when somebody gets negative, I, I brood on it and it triggers some bad stuff. Yeah. So I just stay away from it. Right. Your experience of your own psychology now compared with 40 years ago is night and day. Yeah. Is the illness easier to manage as you get older? Well, I'd say that you you adjust to it. And right. I don't even feel like I'm managing it anymore except taking my drugs. It's second nature for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And I would never dream of going off the meds. Mm-hmm. How has it affected your relationships? I have uh, relationships, and, and I value those relationships, positive ones, mm-hmm. of course. And so I got to tell you about the first one first. Sure. The woman that was waiting for me at the airport, mm-hmm. she married me a couple years later, and we're <laughs> in year 38. We had developed a relationship, mm-hmm. and while I was gone, I visited her in Seattle, and she came out and visited me. But there was nothing serious about it. Sure. And when I got sick, she was the only one there. She's the only one there for me. And and we've done a lot over the years. Um, she's a retired children's nurse. Hmm. And, you know, we traveled. It's great. And without her, who knows where I would have been. Sure. And she went to the airport. She waited for me. She picked me up and she took me to the hospital. Hmm. I kind of had to depend on her when she would come to me and say, Steve, you're a little high. Hmm. Take some meds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the course of a couple years after I got the medication regimen all squared away, it's been self-managed since then. And I, I take care of it myself. Nobody has to tell me. Right. And especially now that I'm not doing any of that. Right. So 38 years. Uh-huh. I mean, regardless of mental health, that's a feat. You think? I mean, in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I'm really proud of it. What are the things that you tell people who are just now coming on to the onset of their illness? Well, I tell my story and say, look, there's hope. You can have a life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got you to work at it, but you can have a life. My treatment started in the ward, and when I got out, I had to uh, get a psychiatrist so I could get through the medication gig. And what was that like? I mean, was it? It was uh, painful. I would say, and the first psychiatrist I got, worked with him for six months, didn't do a thing for me, didn't connect with him at all. He was loading me with medications that I, that didn't feel right and we, they weren't doing what they're supposed to. So then I had to go find somebody else, which is again, traumatic. And when I found her and I stayed with her for 35 years until she retired two years ago. And she helped me through all of it along with my wife. Do you keep in touch with her? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. I drew a graph early on, early on, and one of them is how you feel. This is everybody, you know, and it goes up and down and up and down. And then the second graph is happenings in your life. You know, you got a new job, you got a divorce, you had a child. And so you put those two graphs up, and there's not really a correlation. You can have a great day on but you're not feeling very well about it. 
And so that, and, and then you lay on the bipolar manic depression stuff and it just magnifies everything. And what I told myself, I drew two parallel lines and I said, I have to stay inside that range if I want to have a life. And I did. Three themes that I heard from our guests in regards to taking care of themselves were getting enough sleep, taking notes and graphs on their emotional experience, and checking in with friends and family and what they might be perceiving. Here's Jeff. I think that's one of the greatest things I've learned. If I do have one of these big ideas again, run it by everybody I know. You know, get a, get a reality check there. And then if I do decide to pursue it, pursue it with help. Pursue it with a friend. I've got the energy and the drive, uh, particularly when hypomanic, uh, to get so much done. But I need it to be tempered with a reality check. And the people in my life around me can help me do that. So if in the future I find myself sliding or getting these great ideas, whatever, they, they may feel like great ideas. Hey, who knows? Maybe one of them is. I'll check in with my therapist and I'll check in with my friends and family. What kind of feedback does your therapist give you? Depends on which topic. You know, I, I go into things with him that are not necessarily related to bipolar. You know, self-growth and dealing with history of, of my life. I, I lost my brother when I was young. Mm. And that's something that therapist have, a therapist has helped me with yeah. as well. Uh, things like that. Just it's not always about the bipolar disorder because I've got a pretty good handle on it. As I mentioned, I've been stable for two years. It's just good to have that, that touch point. And the medication balance. I've been on the same medication regimen for two years as well. Haven't had to tweak it. Will your therapist tell you if if they think that there's something off with you that day? Or? Yes. Yeah, not as much maybe that day because there's ups and downs, of course. But I tend to be pretty pretty stable for the most part. Yeah. For the most part, there are rough days. There's always going to be a little bit of fear that it'll happen again, and that this time maybe I'll lose everything that I built up in my life. But with the people I have around me and with the experience I have now, it's a small fear. Yeah. The last two years, yeah. you've been able to stabilize and get things back to some degree of normality. Have yeah. you been able to build back the life that you had before? Had before, no. I'd say I, I built up a little bit of a better one, one where I'm more considerate of the people around me than I used to be, one where I am more in control than I used to be. I built up a life where the work that I do is more suited for me than a high-pressure sales job. I was in sales for about 10 years, mm -hmm. and that could be very stressful. And that probably led to some of what caused the first episode. Everybody's got triggers, mm -hmm. and high-stressful situations can be those triggers for me. So I try and avoid a high amount of stress. And so what are your ways of managing stress now? What, what I'll do to de-stress is talk to a friend, mm -hmm. or I will work out. Or I will just spend some time by myself, kind of cooling down, or I will take a nap. There's a number of different ways that I do that. Mm -hmm. But you had asked me if I built, you know, if I'd rebuilt the life that I had before. Um, like I said, I, I, I built a, a new one with a, with a stable home base, you know, uh, an anchor point where I can always go back to. Friends that have surrounded me and everybody in my life knows that I have bipolar disorder. I'm very open about it. You know, obviously I volunteer for NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, giving talks at high schools and colleges and even to law enforcement about mental illness. 
And that's a part of my life now that I didn't have before. A real volunteer outlet where I feel like I'm doing something that might actually help other people. Mm. And so I've got a lot to live for. And looking in hindsight and seeing that depression back in 2012 is, is scary. Do you experience gratitude? Very much so. Yeah. Almost every day. It's not quite a personal mantra, but it's something that I've been trying to do very much lately is to be present and to be grateful. To not linger in what's happened in the past as much, to not be as fearful of the future. Tomorrow is not promised. And so I want to be as present as I can today so I don't get anxious about the future or I don't really have many regrets, but I don't think it's a great way to live your life with regrets. Yeah. But you can linger in the past as well. I think some people do. I think that's difficult for all of us to be in the It present. is, to be present and to be grateful. You know, these are challenges that face everyone, not just somebody with bipolar disorder or another mental illness. Obviously, you've done a lot of work since then. I mean, at what point did you kind of turn the corner? Probably the August of 2015. That specifically, huh? Yeah. I started school. I mentioned earlier that I'm a person of community, and I really thrive off of other people and belonging to something. And I think that joining a school again gave me something to focus on other than my identity as a patient. Mm -hmm. Throughout this process, has therapy been a part of it? Yes. And what has that been like? It's been psychiatry and therapy. Mm -hmm. So psychiatry is my psychiatrist who gives me medicine. And then therapy has been um, different individuals who have helped me explore how I feel about mental illness, how I feel about myself when I, when I, when I think about my episodes, and have helped do some family therapy too to help me work through, work through relational problems. I've seen maybe three therapists for like seasons of a couple months each, hmm. some maybe a year. Before your first episode, was some, was therapy anything that you had had a concept of? No. Really? And what has been helpful about therapy? Having someone to talk to mm -hmm. about meaningful issues. And you're studying to be a therapist. Yeah. As someone who struggles with mental illness going into the field of helping others, how do you feel like that informs what will be your profession? I don't think anyone who has never gone through psychosis can understand what mm -hmm. it's like to, to treat someone who's going through it. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to be stationed in a hospital someday in a psych ward and be doing music therapy sessions mm -hmm. with patients who are going through stuff that I went through. And what was, what was the role that music played for you when you were going through the worst of it? Mostly a calming presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What kind of music? ukulele music that's really yeah i write ukulele music and so that has been a source of sauce for me my last hospitalization uh i had a lot of nice jam sessions with some patients who had brought guitars and we'd play wonder wall and wanted dead or alive and <laughs> <laughs> not only did it have a calming effect but it was communal as well mm, yeah have you developed routines and practices that help you Yes, in my family, we call them the pillars that are, well, it's sleep, diet, exercise, social, and like emotional, mental health activities and routines that really are the pillars to a good 
stable house and we have a buttress too which is the medication that supports the building yeah, all of you have developed this language around it yeah we um we've even come up with a family contract that lists out the different things that our family will do to stay healthy not just me but our family and have signed it so that we can stay take ownership of, of our health and maintain good relationships towards each other okay jeff is about to drop some science on y'all and I really wanted to make sure you take note. I asked him about how we should interact with people who are delusional, and his answer was congruent with what the research indicates is most helpful as well. One of many reasons it's important for us who practice to have these kinds of conversations with our patients about what is most helpful for them instead of just deciding it for them. What is your experience around how people who are not experiencing delusions should interact with those who are? Oh, gosh. Uh, never meet force with force. And that is something that I try and explain to the police uh, when I talk to them. I've spoken with the, the King County Sheriff's Department as well as the FBI, actually, recently. Wow. Which was pretty cool. That is great. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It's not a situation where you're going to control the other person. And, and you know, ob- obviously, in a, in a number of situations, police have to be confrontational to get someone's attention. Or, But I think if someone's experienced an illusion, it's okay to say what you observe. What would I say to somebody who wants to confront someone in a delusion is to understand the delusion a little bit. Don't just scream that they're wrong or don't just tell them that they're wrong. Uh, Actually try and listen and understand and say, okay, I see that you're upset. What are you upset about? You know, draw them out a little bit because in their mind, it's very real. In my mind, I was very real what I was feeling. You were, you were figuring out the universe. and that Figuring moment. out the whole universe. It would be like if you woke up one morning or you, over the course of a few days perhaps, you started to recognize that you had the cure for cancer in your head. What that would feel like. How amazing that would be. And you're not listening to any of your friends who are telling you that you're not an oncologist, nothing you're saying is making sense, you never spent time in a lab, those kind of things. Because you're in a delusion. Do you still have friends who have been you know, there throughout the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah, my partner Jasmine and I were together when I during the last last hospitalization I was in. Yeah. I was in, and so she's she's seen me at my worst. And I've got friends from when I moved to Seattle, more or less, or a couple of years after, that were there, and I'd been friends with for years before everything happened. Would they have recognized you as an impulsive person even before the first episode? Yeah, I've always been very full of energy, and if I get an idea, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. We got to do it now, and let's get this done, and. Just jumping on it, which has served me well in, in my career uh, when I was in sales. But And I think that's one of the really difficult things about bipolar that I would recognize is that there's part of that that seems like if you could bottle it and sell it, oh, yes, people would be clamoring for it. Yeah, tempting to go back there. Yeah. It takes an outside force to bring me down. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a lot of good outside forces. I do. And I'm very grateful to your, to your earlier point. Mm-hmm. Very grateful. This has been Between Us. Our sincere thanks to our guests for their stories and openness and honesty. Season 2 of Between Us is sponsored by Medify. Medify is an app that encourages emotional and bodily awareness. Go download it today. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely. Mason also composed most of our music. But the ukulele music you've been hearing is our guest today, Nick Ryder. The album is called Tulips for Strings, and you can find it online. As usual, 
find us on social media. We have an Instagram account now where you can see pictures of me recording interviews in my kitchen. Find us on your podcast apps and subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. Reach out at betweenuspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care.